Hello, and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. Last week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Lori DeShane, founder of Tiny Buddha and author of Tiny Buddha's Worry Journal. This week, we're continuing our series on the central question, Who Am I?, by exploring some subjects related to the content of that conversation, particularly anxiety and fear. As I've mentioned before, I have a bit of an anxious temperament myself, so I'm very familiar with how feelings of fear can cloud our ability to express ourselves and live fully realized lives. This episode will be the first of two exploring questions related to fear, and in it we're going to cover some of the framing ideas that'll help us get to know anxiety and related feelings a little better. This includes questions like, where does anxiety come from? What are some of the key differences between people who avoid and people who approach? And can our temperament, that resting state level that helps define our sense of who we are, really change over time? I also want to let you know about next week's episode, which I'm very excited about. We had the absolute pleasure of interviewing Dr. Angela Duckworth, professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, founder of the nonprofit Character Lab, and author of the bestseller Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. We had a fantastic time talking with Dr. Duckworth and got into some really interesting material related to grit, particularly the importance of the passion part of that passion and perseverance equation. But anyway, back to this week. To help us learn more about our temperament and where anxiety and fear come from, I'm joined by Dr. Rick Hansen. How are you doing today? I'm really good, and I am not anxious at all about this topic. (laughs) Very familiar (laughs) with it. Very comfortable. I like it. I like it a lot. So we've spoken a lot on the podcast so far about the evolutionary basis of fear, particularly related to our core need for safety, as you define our three core needs of safety, satisfaction, and connection. When we talk about these topics, we tend to use a lot of words sort of interchangeably. Mm. We talk about fear or anxiety Mm. or worry or related feelings. And I'm sort of wondering if you would like to begin by kind of distinguishing between these different words. Let me distinguish between five things that will be topics that we'll be exploring, even though one of them in particular, anxiety itself, is Mm -hmm. what we'll be getting at. So first, we have threats, things that challenge our need for safety. Threats, when they're real, are real, and nothing in what we're saying is about trying to avoid real threats. On the other hand, people can respond to threats, as we've explored previously, from what we call the green zone of coping and resilience and stable well-being in a challenging world. People can respond to threats without being overwhelmed by them. Second, we have what's called aversion, the sense of things as unpleasant. And people very naturally, innately, in the degree to which they tend to be aversive to things, distinct from the degree to which they find other things really pleasant and enjoyable. And this experience of aversion feeds into avoiding pain, distinct from approaching pleasure, and aversion tends to increase as well what's called a prevention orientation in a person, uh, a threat orientation, distinct from an um, promotion orientation in a person, which is more opportunity-focused. Then third, we have inhibition, the capacity in somebody to put on the brakes or the trait innately, the temperament of what's called behavioral inhibition or in the social sphere, shyness, Hmm. uh, or kids who are slow to warm or adults themselves. And before I go any further, I should also point out that uh, these terms and and these experiences really can be situation-specific or domain-specific. So for example, I've known people who are really bold physically in 
threatening sports like surfing or rock climbing, um, and even bold uh, in their business world. But interpersonally, they're shy and they're really uncomfortable with any kind of emotional vulnerability. And then the last two, we have wariness, which is really important to pay attention to. Wariness or caution or vigilance is a way of orienting to life as a general strategy that in the moment doesn't necessarily have any anxiety involved. Mm. And in fact, uh, if a person is allowed to exercise their wariness and it's not overly challenged, they feel perfectly comfortable mm-hmm. inside that comfort zone of how they live in a really cautious way or how they interact with other people. You know, they keep the conversation pleasant but superficial. They maintain an optimal distance between themselves and, and other people. And as long as that optimal distance is preserved, they're doing fine. There's no anxiety. And then last, the fifth word, anxiety itself. And by that, I'm really talking about the feeling, the experience of anxiety, which very often can have a cognitive component. And I find it's very helpful to be of self-aware of the spectrum of anxiety inside your own mind, including really mild, subtle background forms of anxiety that have become so habitual, they're the new normal, you hardly even notice it anymore, and yet they really affect you. So kind of on a spectrum, imagine subtle uneasiness or apprehensiveness, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to do a spectrum kind of of intensity. Great. So then uh, moving more on that spectrum, we might have a kind of background feeling of dread or, oh, something bad is going to happen, you can't really put your finger on it. And then moving into worry, which is also fairly preoccupying and has more and more of a cognitive component of ruminating about things we're worrying about. And then you're moving more intensely, let's say, into actual fear or panic or terror. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a spectrum of territory. And then just kind of finishing up on all this. Uh, arguably anxiety or and a related emotion of disgust, which is also obviously connected to dealing with threats and aversion, uh, are arguably those were the very first emotions of all. They're very fundamental to us. They're pervading. They're important. But they're often um, unnecessary because in the moment at least, there's no actual threat Or even if there is a threat, we can cope with a threat without being burdened by uh, unpleasant and excessive anxiety. That's great. So to focus in on two of those words for the moment, it feels like there's a sort of interplay between wariness and anxiety, where a warier person Mm -hmm. would be more vulnerable to experiences of anxiety. Mm. Is that more or less That's really perceptive. Exactly right. Yeah. I think a lot because I worked with kids, kids who are so-called slow to warm, Mm. or they're particularly cautious, especially, let's say, socially when they enter new situations. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, a child like that or an adult like that maybe is more prone to experience anxiety Mm -hmm. on the one hand, On the other hand, I really want to emphasize for us the ways in which many people who say, I don't feel anxious, are living lives that are much smaller Mm, than they mm -hmm. need to be. Yeah. And actually, when you open it up to include self-awareness, mindfulness of, wariness, Mm. cautiousness, you then start to realize, whoa, 
anxiety in the broadest sense here, if you will, fear in the broadest sense that does include wariness and caution actually plays a larger role in my life than I'd taken into account. So as you alluded to a second ago, there are situations that would make anybody anxious to kind of quote an old line, it's not paranoia if they really are out to get you. Yeah. That's an anxious state, which yeah. is a state that anyone might experience at yeah. any given moment in their lives if they're faced by mm-hmm. something challenging. Yeah. Then there's the trait of anxiety. And I think that most of our focus here will be on people who have this mm-hmm. trait. Is there a difference between people who are prone to states of anxiety versus those who have the trait of anxiety? Oh, it's interesting. Well, If you are high on innate Mm. anxiety, Mm -hmm. in other words, due to heritable factors like Mm -hmm. we've talked about in previous podcasts, and also if you're prone, let's say, to the inhibition Mm. or aversion Mm -hmm. or wariness aspects of this general territory, I'll call it a fear, really, really broad. Yeah, absolutely. To include these whole five things. And we'll, I'll use the word anxiety more for the actual experience yeah, totally. of, of fear, let's say. So yeah, if you're, if you're innately that way, you're more likely to have those kind of experiences. Mm-hmm. It's also true that um, people can, over time, acquire greater mm. trait anxiety. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of separating out here innate and acquired state and trait. And the word that's really useful is to appreciate the ways in which we can become affected by our life experiences. Mm-hmm. Also, the, it's useful to appreciate the ways that we're just kind of born a certain way to some extent in terms of especially how aversive we tend to be and also how inhibited we and wary we tend to be. Those are pretty natural, dispositional, temperamental factors that we're kind of born with, uh, although we can you know, adapt to them over time and manage them over time. The other thing, third, that's uh, relevant here for people is to really raise the question, how do you feel when you're currently not being threatened? Hmm. It, in other words, if you're about to fall off a mountain or you know, an alligator's about to bite your foot, okay, feel scared, right? Um, but in general, is there what psychologists or other therapists would call free-floating anxiety? Hmm. Do you have even in extreme forms, what's called a generalized anxiety disorder, so that in your mind, there's a high level of trait, apprehensiveness, vigilance, guarding, and uh, uneasiness, kind of as a trait, even if it's more in the wallpaper of your mind and your background of your mind, that is always looking and scanning for the basis of that uneasiness. Mm -hmm. And often, based on free-floating anxiety, overreacting to things that are actually minor challenges or minor threats uh, and having really intense upsets about them. So you just made an allusion to heritable and non-heritable factors related to Mm. either an anxious temperament or a sense of wariness or whatever it might be. And of course, in our previous episode, in this running series on the question of who am I, we spent a lot of time talking about the distinction between heritable and non-heritable factors. Mm Mm-hmm. So, is there a genetic or heritable basis for anxiety? Yeah, there is definitely a genetic heritable basis for aversion, Mm. inhibition, 
uh, wariness, probably some vulnerabilities to anxiety itself. Minimally, there are innate heritable factors that have to do with better or worse regulation capacities. So it's really complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and therefore, to me at least, weirdly fascinating and, and <laughs> sure. useful. Because, see, the thing is, if there are lots of intertwining systems that can mess you up, bad news, that means therefore there are a lot of intertwining systems that, eat, that give you many, many opportunities for tweaking that could help things go better. Gotcha. It makes total sense. So why are some people innately more anxious than others? You mean why at the level of why did we evolve temperamental variation in the human genome? That's the deep why. Well, I suppose that that could, you know. be, that could send us down a real rabbit hole here. I don't know if there's a concise answer to that. But yeah, yeah. I, I just think that what I'm really trying to point to here is the sort of underlying question of why is it that some people are activated by stuff and some people yeah. are not? Yeah. And I, I don't know if there's a clean answer to that question. Maybe there isn't one. Yeah. In, in which case, we'll kind of just leave it at the door as an interesting question. Um, but if there is, that's really what I'm kind of trying to ask. Yeah. I, it's a great question. Um, and um, there are different uh, levels of causality, if you mm -hmm. think about it. Not to get way too philosophical. I avoided those classes in college because <laughs> I wanted to protect my GPA. But I've really come to appreciate that people often get into trouble when they misunderstand levels of causality. Yeah. Yeah? So when you say, well, why are some people innately prone to anxious based mm -hmm. on heritable factors, let's mm -hmm. say? Well, part of the why at the most immediate level has to do with variations in the mechanics, really, of deep, deep neurochemical biological systems in the brain. That's part of the why. There's just variation. Some people have twitchier amygdalae. Their mm. amygdalae just twitch more or have weaker regulation upon them right there. The deeper why, which I think is really interesting, is why is there such substantial variation of temperament in the human genome, notwithstanding the fact that our genetic diversity mm. is actually much less than our local, our nearest relatives, the chimpanzees and bonobos. In other words, in human evolution, let's say if our immediate species, the last 300,000 years or so, has had some, they're called choke points, in which at various times, probably less than 10,000 humans were alive on this earth. Maybe mm. even other times, probably about 100,000 years ago, when there were only a thousand or a few thousand mm. total, mm -hmm. which means essentially about as many potential breeding pairs, breeding mm -hmm. adults, reproductive adults, uh, humans were alive on planet Earth as there were kids in my dorm, Dykstra Hall, at UCLA, <laughs> 800 people total. Just think about yeah. that. We were nearly extinct multiple times down the course of evolution, which what that mm -hmm. does is it reduces genetic- Limits the gene pool. Yeah, yeah, yeah it limits genetic diversity. So notwithstanding the fact that- mm -hmm. There's, there have been these choke points on genetic diversity that said, boy, there's a pretty wide variation of human temperament. And uh, my own notion about that, and I really haven't read uh, any scholarly work on this, and mm. so my, my notion could be A, crazy, or B, really original and useful. But anyway, <laughs> to me it seems pretty obvious that if you have a hunter-gatherer band that is mainly sharing genes internally down some generations— Bands that of 50 or so people that have a fair amount of diversity in the kind of people in the band. 
Some people are jackrabbits. Some people are turtles. Some people are uh, high, really bold. Some members are really cautious. Bands that had a fair amount of uh, personality differences and variation and diversity of temperament were more likely to outcompete other bands. Mm. They were just turtles or just jackrabbits. Sure. Example, basketball. If you think about it, a team comprised of five all-star guards or five all-star centers or five all-star forwards will probably lose to a team that has two excellent guards, two excellent forwards, and one excellent center. Mm -hmm. Because the diversity of that team enables it to outcompete other teams that are more monoculture, more just of one kind. So for all those reasons, I think that it's really natural to have variation in how people are, which is a way to be more accepting of others, actually, mm -hmm. and also to be more accepting of yourself. Mm -hmm. If you just kind of came out of the box uh, with without the fear gene, <laughs> as it were, I've known people who talk about that, or you came out of the box and it's just your nature to be really cautious and slow to warn, warm, slow to warm, and hyper-focused on what could go wrong. Mm -hmm. If you're like that, it's not a character flaw to be like that. It's just your biological endowment, any more than it's a character flaw to be a little short or a little tall in terms of normal variation. So I think that that's a really interesting conversation and a really interesting point that I'm sure we could spend a considerable amount of time on. I'm going to kind of corral us in here and bring <laughs> us back to sort of the, the central guiding topic yeah. of anxiety and temperament, broadly speaking. Yeah. So there's this huge genetic variation that can exist among mm. people in terms of the development yeah. of an anxious temperament. Mm. You've alluded a few times here to non-heritable factors that can also influence the development of an mm -hmm. anxious temperament. And that's really interesting to me, the idea that somebody could become oh, an anxious yeah. person over the course of their lives. So yeah. for starters, just to, to confirm, that is possible. Oh yeah. And secondarily, how does that happen? Well, first off, think about families. Mm. So imagine a kid who, on the one hand, let's say, starts out in their temperament, which is very observable, um, even in young infants, and then you can really see it also in, in toddlers and preschoolers, their temperament. And let's suppose that that kid who's super cautious and shy and withdrawn has parents and teachers and gets lucky and has good peers who are accepting and sweet and not really scary and invasive or punishing, and who also encourage let's, that kid, let's say a boy, to spread his wings, to gradually get increasingly comfortable with challenge and increasingly confident about being able to deal with challenge. Mm -hmm. So then fast forward 20 years later, um, that person, now an adult, would say, yeah, in my deep down nature, there's a certain cautiousness there. I'm not going to go out and do too many crazy things. On the other hand, I am willing to, as Brene Brown puts it, dare greatly, to live boldly mm. uh, with a whole heart uh, in certain ways. Flip the other way, mm -hmm. take a kid who, let's say, temperamentally was pretty bold, pretty um, seeking. Exploratory. Exploratory, great word. That's the exact right word. Really pretty exploratory. But put him in environments, schools, neighborhoods, family environments, where exploration was really uh, punished mm. and or put him in situations where that, that child just sees terrible things happening to people mm. routinely. Mm -hmm. Uh, my dad, as you know, grew up on a ranch in North Dakota, and, and 
Uh, I think by nature, he tends to be a little cautious by nature. On the other hand, in that ranching environment, he had friends who died. A horse rolled over on him uh, in the wintertime. Maybe they were trapped in a snow field and they froze to death. Uh, it was a scary scene. Or if you made a misjudgment in as a farmer or a rancher, uh, that could bankrupt you by the next fall if you just did something wrong. So environments like that kind of train people in cautiousness. And then even further, you can imagine traumatic situations where people are, are really assaulted or they have terrible things happen to them that really fosters, let's say, anxiety, including extreme forms of that, post-traumatic stress disorder. So yeah, we're, we're, we're very vulnerable to fear learning. It's interesting that a lot of the research on how the brain changes based on our experiences has to do with fear learning. Mm. And uh, studies done on um, non-human animals that are ethically, you know, question marked and, and often very invasive, but where different rodents, mice and rats are trained essentially to fear certain things. And then you see what happens in their brain as a result, including as they unlearn that fear, which actually goes to something maybe really hopeful that we're going to, I'm sure, get at in part two of this mm-hmm. series here on anxiety, that much as that much as we can learn to be afraid, we can learn to be unafraid. Mm. And that doesn't mean that we're going to learn to be stupid and oblivious to what's actually dangerous. But I'm often struck by this saying from the early teachings in Buddhism that one is wise who is peaceable, friendly, and fearless. Mm. And the combination of that, you can just kind of feel that. What's it like to be peaceable, friendly, and fearless? You can be appropriately cautious. You can be appropriately firm or fierce with threats and challenges, but not be afflicted with feeling like the world is threat-level orange when most of the time it's actually threat-level green. Yeah, I think that's sweet and really very hopeful. And as you were saying, we're certainly going to be exploring the sort of how of this process Mm -hmm. a little bit more in a future episode. Mm. In all of that, and to sort of return to something that you mentioned a little bit earlier in the episode, this distinction between people who approach versus people who avoid, you're thinking of that child with maybe a more exploratory nature. Mm. What are the kind of key differences between these two groups of people, and what sort of nudges people toward being more of an approacher versus more of an avoider? Well, here's a weird example, and I I hope it's not too revealing for you. Mm. So... My sense of you, tell me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. is that when something was physically painful, it was pretty uncomfortable for you as a kid. Mm -hmm. You really really felt it, Mm -hmm. and it was your nature. You really felt it. On the other hand, you've blown my mind, Forrest, in things that you've done interpersonally Mm -hmm. that would make me, a, a fairly shy person, completely alarmed. Like, whoa. And so you have these different domains where people are cautious and even fearful and, you know, different domains in which they're not that way. Mm. And how did you become that way? How did you be able to step into that situation with such a plume and take really big risks, essentially? Well, I think to a certain extent, it returns to something that we spent, I think, a full episode on last year, which is this, this idea of like secure and insecure attachment, mm. where I was a pretty darn securely attached child. 
So I might be somebody who has a vulnerability to painful experiences. And, and it's true. Like, there are people who don't really mind pain. Physical. Physical pain. Yeah. They, just, they just don't really mind it. Yep. Like, they feel it, but yeah. they're like, oh, okay, here it is. They don't like it, but it doesn't bother them. Yeah, that might be a great <laughs> distinction. Yeah, I, I would say that I both don't like it and it does bother me. I yeah. kind of go out of my way to say like, hey, if I could avoid feeling pain, wh- why would I yeah. not do that? It seems sort of inherently obvious to me, but there are people who are wired quite differently there than I am. But inside of that, to your point about heritable versus non-heritable factors, I very much growing up had an extremely secure environment around me. There were very few moments when I was like really punished for doing something wrong. I sort of developed this inner sense that, oh, it'll basically work out in the end and related factors like that. So I think that that definitely really supported me in maybe having that innate heritable susceptibility to physical discomfort mm. while also creating a very secure outward social yeah. relationship with other people and other things. Yeah. That's great. And uh, I'm, as a dad, you know, I'm really glad that's that's how it was for you. It does make me feel into an experience I had in Joshua Tree National Park, which is one of my all-time favorite places. And I went hiking by myself uh, cross-country through wilderness there, completely broken ground. And so I was in an, an environment where no one was within probably a couple miles of me at least. And the territory I was in was extremely hard to get into and get out of. And it was pretty risky. There was a fair amount of scrambling over big rocks. And and I was by myself and I just had a little bit of water and that was about it. And what I observed as I did that walk, probably about eight miles, six, eight miles total, was that uh, I was just watching anxiety and watching anxiety come up in my mind in the subtle forms of uneasiness, fear, that were different from, they were added to kind of the mechanical, physical problem solving of don't step here, watch out for that sharp cactus there. Uh Uh-oh, don't put your hand there. There could be a snake hidden away in a crevice. Mm -hmm. Move around this. Mm -hmm. Oh, how how am I doing with time? Very practical problems. Yeah, you could. there's this problem-solving track that can go on, and then there's this anxiety track Mm. that's often really independent. Mm -hmm. And I just kept observing, moment after moment after moment, I didn't need to be feeling fear. Mm -hmm. I needed to be alert. I needed to be careful. I needed to be motivated. I needed to keep going. But I didn't need to feel fear, and yet fear kept arising. Hmm. I rationally knew, hey, there's no basis for fear. And yet from the underbelly, (laughs) you know, the animal underbelly, tick tock, it just kept coming up. And it was so interesting to become really aware of that subtlety of unnecessary fear that's added actually to appropriate coping and problem solving. And to develop as, as I practiced on that hike, which was a very meaningful day in my life, as I practiced again and again and again, moving over the land, it's a large you know, land mammal, moving over the land without any feeling of fear whatsoever. And what a really neat and powerful experience that is. Yeah, I think there's a suggestion there at the very least of a kind of practice that somebody could take on if they had that background feeling of anxiety in their mm-hmm. life. Just the, the development of that felt sensation of moving powerfully or moving without the the background murmurs of fear. I think a lot of people, so your, your question is, why don't we do that? 
Mm-hmm. And I think in addition to whatever is like the habit of fear or the primal biological evolved basis of it, I think many people are afraid of not feeling afraid. Hmm. How so? Well, I've seen that numerous times that if you work with people and you're trying to help them, they understand rationally that they could lower their guard or they understand rationally that the experience of fear doesn't add any value and it actually is uncomfortable and even long-term might wear down health and coping. They understand that intellectually and yet when it's time to really let go of the fear, it makes Mm. them really scared. Mm -hmm. And in that is often um, the reason for the fear of not being afraid is this belief, sometimes based on history, this expectation that if I'm not afraid, I'll lower my guard and that's when I'll get really hurt. Mm -hmm. Or that's when I'll really do a big thing wrong. Mm -hmm. So if people want to play around with these practices of real-time mindfulness, highly granular mindfulness, so you're really tracking over a time course of just a second or two at a time, and also pretty subtle sensations even in your own body and in in your emotions. If you want to do this practice of letting go of anxiety, letting go of fear in real time, it's really helpful to observe any kind of resistance in your mind to doing this. Mm, mm -hmm. You've got to be willing to function without fear. And yet, wow, I can really just tell you that living your life in that way, peaceable, friendly, and fearless, Mm. feeling unthreatened, right? You might see challenges around you, but in your core, you don't feel afraid. Boy, that's a, that's a wonderful, a wonderful kind of gift to yourself. So one of the questions that I had a little while ago that led us toward this series on who am I is the question of what does a severe pathology mm. look like at 1%? And then you mentioned to me this idea of shadow syndromes, mm. which is a popular book and the kind of psychological discourse which posits that somewhere between most of us and all of us have inside ourselves some little remnant of a severe pathology. You could see how anxiety might be the shadow of paranoia, Mm -hmm. or OCD might be the shadow of something, Mm -hmm. or something might be the shadow of narcissism, or whatever it might be. So I think that it's sometimes helpful to see what something is both at the 1% and at the 100%. So what do you think the pathology is Hmm. that anxiety is kind of a shadow of? Yeah. Dr. John Rady, a psychiatrist at Harvard Medical School, I think is the author of of this book on shadow syndromes. And he's, by the way, a really interesting guy. He's written a number of books, including Spark, which is about exercise. Mm. And one of his most recent books, I love the title, is Go Wild, the value of being out in nature. And as a detail, uh, I interviewed him for the online Foundations of Wellbeing program. And he was gracious to participate in that interview with lots of great material in it. So I want to name panic attacks. Mm. Panic attacks, I've had one in my entire life, and uh, they are extremely intense experiences. They're non-ordinary experiences. They're really distinct from being really worried about something or feeling really spooked about something. It's panic. And in the panic attack, there's a lot of visceral sensations, often accompanied with things like intense sweating or feeling like you're having a heart attack, you might be about to die. They're really, really intense. So that would be an example of fear dialed up to 100, panic attack. And um, it's helpful to appreciate that there are a lot of good treatments for panic attacks. 
And if you're at all prone to panic attacks, it's helpful to appreciate the fact that no one has ever died of a panic attack itself, mm. even though it feels like you're about to die. And second, all panic attacks end, usually within <laughs> 20 minutes. So those are good things to know. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, though, there certainly are people who are having multiple panic attacks every day. Mm. This is a serious condition. So that's an extreme version, let's say, of subtle forms of apprehensiveness and uneasiness. Another extreme version is true paranoia, in which a person is psychotically alarmed about something that they have a delusion about. And I've worked with clients um, who had paranoid delusions, and I'll try to disguise this a little bit, but uh, the classic delusion is something like uh, the CIA is out to get me. Mm. And I think there are maybe some people that the intelligence services of one country or another maybe are really <laughs> out to get. Uh, but in this particular case I'm thinking of, this was actually the, the father of a, of a client I saw at one point, uh, there really is just no CIA out to get a person. But it's paranoid. It's a delusion. And often a paranoid delusion can operate in, a, in an encapsulated way in the mind of someone who is otherwise highly functional. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I've learned painfully is never try to, it's pointless to try to talk somebody out of a paranoid delusion who has a genuine delusion that is psychotic at its root. In other words, it's completely baseless, mm -hmm. maybe even bizarre. Mm -hmm. And that's an extreme version as well of what dialed down is sometimes called an overvalued idea. The <laughs> notion that Let's say a person who is more worried about the possibility of being assaulted criminally by someone or getting in a traffic accident than seems really warranted by the evidence basis for that concern. And yet for that person it's a you know, it's a preoccupation. They're not it's not crazy crazy, but still it's a kind of overvalued concern. Uh, another version of that is people who are a little hypochondriacal. You know, they're a little extra concerned more than they really need to be about something going wrong in their bodies. Sometimes people are that way because they've had genuinely bad things go wrong in their bodies. So understandably, uh, every um, sort of new mole is a, there's like, oh no, is, is that a recurrence of skin cancer? Or uh, every little ache in their in their GI tract, oh, is something, you know, is the ulcer coming mm -hmm. back when it's really not? So that's a dialed down version. And maybe I'll just uh, end with one more. Social anxiety is actually really, really prevalent, mm. much more than many, many people might think. And uh, it's often disguised because the person just narrows their life. They just don't meet new people. They just don't go out or they would love to have a life partner, but mm, dating is a non-option. They're mm -hmm. just not gonna go there. And uh, so it's really worth looking at what your willingness is to move outside your comfort zone. Can you tolerate it in terms of fear? You know, how okay are you with pushing past your boundaries? And if your boundaries seem tighter than those of a lot of other people around you, that's a yellow flag. Mm. And then if it's just, kind of impossible, or oh, I just couldn't stand it, to move beyond a boundary that seems uncommon, given most people around you, then that would be a red flag, mm -hmm. that there's a loss of autonomy there. 
and there are opportunities on the upside for lots of growth. That's great. And of course, in our next episode inside of this series, we're going to talk a lot more about both expanding the playing field, if you will, of comfort inside the mind and what you can do if you start having those underlying experiences of anxiety, fear, social concerns, desperation of various kinds. So really looking forward to that. So I think that's a good place to bring this episode to a close. Again, this was the first part of two episodes focused on understanding and managing underlying feelings related to anxiety and fear. In part two, we'll focus more on the how of dealing with anxiety. But before we get to part two, next week we have a very, very special episode of Being Well featuring our guest, Dr. Angela Duckworth. I think you're really going to enjoy that. So now for a quick recap of today's episode. So we began the episode with you covering five key terms that's useful to know for discussing this general territory of anxiety. Specifically, we spent most of the episode on the last two of those terms, feelings of wariness, where there's kind of this background feeling of scanning for things to be afraid of, versus anxiety, which is that more in-the-moment sensation of rising fear or paralysis or the desire to flee inside of the body itself. We went on to state versus trait, the idea of having a passing state of anxiety, which all of us will probably experience at some point in our lives, versus the underlying trait of anxiety, where some people are just more anxious than other people. We got into some of the whys of that, including heritable and non-heritable factors. You emphasized that both of these places are places where anxiety emerges from, which is interesting given our relatively low genetic variation among different people. You talked about some of the things that might lead to the development of an anxious temperament over time, focusing particularly on the idea of a child who maybe by nature is adventurous, but has a lot of experiences that push them away from adventure. Maybe when they went outside of themselves, something bad happened to them, maybe they were really held in tightly, to their parents and caregivers, so they never develop that secure basis from which to go out and explore the world. Then, finally, we closed by asking that question about shadow syndromes Mm. and the idea of what is anxiety a shadow of? Sometimes by blowing a small problem up to its really, really hugest version, we can come to understand it a little bit better, which is part of why I think that it's so interesting and useful to talk about the kind of grander manifestations of these underlying, seemingly quite minor problems. I want to add one more thing, which is that sometimes people need to become more anxious. Mm. For example, weirdly, research on sociopaths often is that they're not anxious enough Mm. Mm -hmm. about the consequences, even to themselves, of how they're acting. And uh, so people like that actually would be served by training in anxiety. Or there are other people who um, are not worried enough, really, about the consequences of risky behavior, like mm-hmm. adolescents maybe, or yeah, sure. even adults who are doing all kinds of wild and crazy stuff. So sometimes there's a place for dialing up the anxiety, not just dialing it down. Great. So that's it for today's episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it. If you would take a moment to leave a review and subscribe to the podcast through the platform of your choice. I hope you'll join us again next week when we'll be joined by Dr. Angela Duckworth. Until then, thanks for listening.